Welcome to Encounters with Success, the podcast about the people who made something from nothing, with your host, Richard Dyson. Today we're talking to a leading cell biologist. Her work spans both the fields of academic science and business. She runs a lab and teaches at University College London, and she's also involved in the growing medtech business Atocap, where she's a chief scientific officer. Atocap develops clinical techniques such as nanocapsules, which deliver treatment straight to the source of a patient's infection. A current focus is the development of targeted treatments for urinary tract infections. Our guest is Dr. Jennifer Roan. Jenny, thanks for talking to us and welcome to the show. Oh, you're very welcome. You're a mother, you're leading a research team at a London hospital, you've got university teaching responsibilities, you're also an author with three novels under your belt, and you're developing a cutting-edge medtech business which could transform lives. How on earth do you make all that fit together, Jenny? It's really not easy. And uh, since the birth of my son, well, almost seven years ago, I'm not doing as many things as I used to do. But I think the key to having a a portfolio and having lots of different strings in your bow is really focusing on what matters and not doing a lot of stuff that, that doesn't advance any of your your sort of your core passions. So I don't watch a lot of television. And in recent years, I haven't read as much as I used to read because I'm focusing more on things I really want to do now. And I think it's important to, to, to kind of th- keep in mind that Nothing is permanent. So at the moment, I'm not doing any novel writing. I'm, I'm busy raising my son, but I know that I'll get back to it one day. And at the moment, I'm spending a lot of time in my garden because it, it gives me great pleasure, especially during lockdown. And, and I really like 20 hours a week sometimes. And, and I know that can't last either. So I, I sort of um, do what I need to do um, in a way that 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 helps me. And I know that uh, not to feel guilty about the things that I, I just can't manage. Do you think of yourself as a scientist first, uh, Jenny? Oh, yes, I do. I mean, I have been a scientist longer than I've been any other thing that you mentioned. I've only been a mother for seven years. I've only been a novelist for 10 years. Yes, science was my original passion, even when I was a little girl uh, chasing butterflies and putting beetles in bottles and things like that. Science has always been with me as long as I can remember. And I do identify, I think, most strongly as a scientist. But, you know, it's not an exclusive thing. You can be a scientist and a human being, which I think a lot of people don't consider when they when they picture the average scientist. They don't really think about the humanity behind that person. But your, your average scientist is also so, uh, you know, a citizen, a consumer, uh, you know, they're using the products that they're making. It, it's, it's a very uh, inclusive thing. Being a scientist does not mean you can't be anything else. And I think it's important to remember that. So let's talk about the, the, the sort of seismic event of 2020, which is COVID-19. And that's, that's seen scientists and, and science right up the news agenda. Is that is that helpful? <laughs> it's an interesting question, and I think it's been both harmful and helpful for the reputation of scientists. So on the on the good side, science is now being sort of positioned as the hero of the story. Scientists are scrabbling all over the world to come up with uh, new vaccines, to come up with new drugs, to have all these clinical trials. Uh, I've never in my whole life witnessed such a massive mobilization of scientific talent, um, not just mobilization, but sort of the international collaboration. 
and, and also the collaboration between academia and industry to get this vaccine out there. Usually it takes 10 years or 20 years to make a vaccine. Now we're seeing these time scales compressed into two weeks and months. It's, it's absolutely jaw dropping. And so in that, in that respect, uh, science is sort of um, looking like the hero of the story. But you've seen also, I think, uh, the darker side, which is that scientists are starting to be scapegoated a little bit and blamed. So they're being smeared by the by the, the press. Um, they're being blamed by governments. And I think this is not surprising. Uh, it's it's it is very common for blame to be shifted when, when things aren't going well. And science is the logical, uh, in a way, a logical target because, you know, you should have sorted this out, shouldn't you have? But people forget that it's not science that's responsible for making these crucial decisions that government has to make. It's government. Government needs to take scientific advice and government needs to understand that scientific advice is not black and white. You know, we're not purveyors of the crystal ball. It's almost like the weather forecast in a way, you know, you, we can predict that a pandemic is coming and we can make suggestions for what to do, but none of us knows how it's going to play out. We can only give our best estimates, our, our educated and scientific guesses, if you will. And I think people don't understand that science is not black and white. And sure, if things don't go to plan, maybe you're thinking that that scientists should have should have warned us and, and maybe we should have done something different. So, yes, science as a hero, science as a villain. You've spent a lot of time and energy promoting science uh, and, and promoting the investment in science. So to some extent, uh, COVID-19 must be quite a welcome uh, crisis in the sense that business is suddenly connecting with science in a way that perhaps it hasn't in, in recent past. And the question I guess I'd ask is, are scientists good at life outside the lab? Are they good at engaging with politicians on this daily basis uh, and with business people? Well, you're very right that science is very critical now. I, I do sometimes worry that we're going to pour all our money into COVID-19 and then the next pandemic is going to come along or all the other diseases that are so important will be neglected. But that aside, I mean, your question about whether we as scientists are good at engaging, you can't really say that a scientist is one kind of person. And I have seen scientists who are absolutely amazing communicators, and I've seen scientists who really ought to just stay in their lab and not say anything because they're terrible. It's just like any other human being. You have a spectrum of talents. And I think science has been very good at, at getting the, the people who can speak about science out there in front of the cameras. I've seen some amazing uh, people you know, being interviewed on the news, uh, really just uh, giving their best um, their best assessments of this pandemic. And I think there are people who are good at that. <laughs> and and I think we need to foster those kind of people and then promote them and help them and give training to younger scientists to be better at speaking at the media. But absolutely not every scientist should be speaking to the media. They're, it's not their strength. They should be in the lab coming up with the breakthroughs and the people who are good at speaking should be out there speaking. But in relation to getting a business off the ground, a part of Jenny's role is to approach potential investors seeking funding. You do need a particular skill set when you're talking to investors, and it's a bit of a steep learning curve for me. How she explains the science behind the business proposition, mainly to an audience of non-scientists, is what she'll be talking about in part two of the show. Jenny, I guess that takes us quite seamlessly onto the next uh, element of, of what I want to be asking you about, which is your experience with Atocap. Um, 
there you were as a scientist in, in the world of business. What, what's it been like talking to in, investors regarding Atacap? Well, in some ways, being a scientist, you're quite well trained at communicating your stuff, right? We spend uh, most of our professional life trying to persuade other scientists that our theory is correct or that our, our most recent data are very exciting and worth, worthy of funding. And in that respect, I'm in a good position as a scientist to talk to people. You do need a particular skill set when you're talking to investors, and there's a bit of a steep learning curve for me. I'd be standing up there, you know, faced with people who really knew absolutely nothing about medicine. And normally, if you're talking to scientists, at least they have some idea what you're talking about, even if they're not a specialist in your particular field. So this is really um, not just talking to people who don't understand science, because we do that all the time as scientists as well. We talk to school children and we do public engagement. This is a completely different kettle of fish. You're trying to persuade somebody to give you money. And this is not something that you're trained to do in science school, if you will. You know, this is not something we're used to doing. We're used to asking for money from, you know, sort of scholarly uh, funding bodies. These people know the drill. They know all about science. They know your, their stuff. Uh, but, but investors don't, don't. And I find that really challenging. And I have practiced a lot trying to get my pitch so it's you know, razor sharp and, and dumbed down enough that people will understand and still take away that important message. So it's taken me a few iterations to get that pitch right. And I think it's it's not something that comes naturally to me or to any scientist. Do you mind, just for the benefit of those listeners who've never done this, do you mind sketching out in more detail what that meeting might be like? You know, when you when you first presented to investors, who's in the room? You know, what what's this what's the tone of the meeting? Well, I've been to quite a number of investor events now, and I find that the people are very positive and very, very forgiving. And I've had a lot of feedback from people I've talked to. And, and sometimes they say, you know, your naivete and your lack of experience is actually refreshing. And, and you stood out from the, from the crowd because your pitch wasn't as polished as others. And I don't know if they were just trying to be nice when they said that, but I did receive feedback like that. Like, wow, you're up there. At, you're a scientist. You're obviously not a business person. I can tell you're not a business person, but actually I like that. So that was my first experience when I realized I did need to up my game, but people were really forgiving and very friendly about it. And something that you've, you've spoken about in the past, but I guess is relevant to many, is uh, the, the private equity world, where you, the, the world of these investors and backers is notoriously male. And, and you're a woman, and with, with that a cap, you're talking now about a treatment for UTI, which is of, of particular benefit to women. How's that been? Well, it's been very, very um, conspicuous, I would say. It's not just me. So I'm a female. One of the founders, Eleanor, she's a female, and our CEO is female. So sometimes it's a double or triple act of, of women up there on the podium. And you look out, and it's a sea of Hugo Boss suits. And, and it is disconcerting because sometimes there are no women in the room where there's maybe one or two dotted about. And I find this, first of all, that's disconcerting. But then, you, as you say, the subject matter seems a little bit feminine. But the way that I capture their attention is by making it personal. So even though these men, uh, the vast majority of them, will never experience a UTI, they probably have a girlfriend or a partner. They almost certainly have a parent or a grandparent who's suffering from recurrent UTI. It's very common in the elderly. And when I am telling my story, sometimes I look out the sea of faces and I see somebody say, oh, you can see in their face, sort of dawning realization, oh, hang on, I know somebody with this. 
yeah, my, my mom's been in and out of hospital with this, or, you know, my partner's had this. And when you can connect on that personal level and you can remind people that this is a problem that affects lots of people, not just lots of people, but somebody you might know, that's where you can get them and reel them in. And, and if that doesn't work, another thing that, that is really important about UTI is, is it is the most common reason that someone will get an antibiotic prescription. And because of that, it's been absolutely instrumental in worsening this thing we call the antimicrobial resistance crisis. It's this global crisis where the drugs don't work anymore because the bugs no longer respond to them. And, and if we don't do something about antimicrobial resistance in, in 10 or 20 years, we're looking at a massive economic damage and, and massive loss of life. So if you can't get them with a personal story about the man with UTI, you can certainly get them with this, this antimicrobial global um, catastrophic crisis that's, that's looming. Just spell out, if you can, um, the, the tech behind ATOCAP, uh, you, you've, you've made clear there its potential in terms of UTI treatment. How, how much wider could, it, could its applications be? Well, our technology is great because it's a delivery system that can deliver almost anything. So at the moment, we're focusing on antibiotics, but you could take any drug, a known drug, a generic drug, a totally new drug, and you can repurpose it with our technology. And what that repurposing does is it makes it highly tissue penetrative. So our technology allows very deep delivery into the target tissue, the disease, for example, it's either an infection or it could be anything. It could be cancer. It could be any disease where you require the drug to go deep into the tissues. And the problem with many drugs, they can be perfectly decent drugs and really good at, their, at doing their thing, but they cannot access where they need to go to be highly effective. So our technology can breathe life into old drugs, uh, generic drugs, and give more potential to new drugs. So the future of Atacap is, is beyond urinary tract infection. It's, it's to any disease that would benefit from more efficient penetration, and actually that's many diseases. It takes a ton of energy and determination to build a business, let alone play a part in the pioneering science that lies behind it as well. So what fuels that drive? You want to be rich, you don't become a scientist. But the reason I'm doing this is because I'm really, really passionate about the patients that we're trying to help. In the next part of the discussion, we get a bit closer to Dr. Jennifer Roan, the person, including the period when she was on the dole and started writing novels. What motivates you, Daddy? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons why people go into science and a lot of people reasons why people go into biotech. And, and I guess some people are chasing money, uh, but that's not what I'm doing at all. Uh, if you want to be rich, you don't become a scientist. You know, we, do, we do decades of training and compared to other professions with the same amount of training, the, the amount that we're paid is pitiful. And I, I'm not motivated by money at all. It's nice to be comfortable. But the reason I'm doing this is because I'm really, really passionate about the patients that we're trying to help. So urinary tract infection is typically uh, a disease of women. Like most diseases of women, it's been historically neglected. Women with symptoms are often told by their doctors that it's all in their head. They're often sent home without antibiotics. Um, I've heard so many patient stories. People have been suffering for years and years from urinary tract infections and being dismissed by the healthcare system as being hysterical or psychosomatic or um, all sorts of labels. It's, it's really shocking. And I think because women are frequently dismissed, 
And also because this disease affects you know, women you know, down there, you know, it's, it's sort of embarrassing. You don't want to talk about urinary tract infection. You don't want to think about where it's happening. It's almost taboo. So it's a, a sort of a perfect storm of neglect where, where UTI research has been just dismally underfunded. There are hardly any people in the world working on it. And it's only now with the antimicrobial resistance crisis where, where people are realizing, hey, this is important. We ought to do something about it. Only now are people starting to notice UTI. And, and, and they haven't noticed because, because it's a disease of women. So this really makes me angry, actually. And, and, but I like to channel my anger into positivity. Whenever I get angry at something, I think, what can I do about it? How can I change this? And, and I've been just working so hard to try to get this product uh, over the, the finish line. And I think... What motivates me is is imagining all of those patients, you know, somehow benefiting from what I'm doing, and that is what wakes me up in the morning and sends me off to the lab all excited um, to do another hard day of work. Uh, you set out the, the case for UTI treatment really powerfully there, um, but but in the end, Atacap is a business, and you're talking to its in, investors and shareholders. So, uh, you know, commercial success is important. Um, uh, where does that fit in, in in your spectrum of priorities, the commercial success of, of a venture like Atacap? What is my measure of success? Commercialization is incredibly important. There are a lot of academics who don't think about that. They only think about the abstract scientific problem. It's like a puzzle to solve. I mean, obviously, in the back of their mind, they're thinking, yes, we want to help patients. But really, what they want to do is get papers and publish and find out how things work. You know, it's a big detective story. Um, but, but for me, it makes no sense to work in a biomedical research field and not think about commercialization, because no matter how many papers you public about an abstract topic, it's not going to help anyone until somebody translates that into something that's helpful. So for me, it's, it's, it's silly to do scientific research and not think of that finish line, which is the marketed product helping people. So yes, I, I'm not at all... Um, shy to say that I think commercialization is very important. And I think more of my colleagues in science ought to be thinking along those lines. Let's move, let's move the story in another direction. You mentioned there uh, a detective story as a, as a theme. And so thinking about your, your work away from the science lab, and in particular with Lab Lit, where, where you've, you've set up to promote literature that, that draws on science for some of its themes, what how do you feel about these big initiatives that you've launched that then uh, you have to step back from? How good are you uh, as somebody who passes on the reins? That's a tough question. I think it's really hard to let go. So I you know there's some things I'm still involved in. So I'm still the editor of lablit.com, which is my you know, sort of labor of love to try to draw attention to scientists as human beings and scientists as characters in novels. And I can't imagine ever letting that go. However, there's other things that I've done that I have let, let go. For example, I organized Science is Vital, which was a grassroots campaign back in 2010 to, to raise awareness for the need for science funding. And I was the, the founder and the chair for many years, but I eventually did let it go because what I realized was that it couldn't go any further under me. First of all, I was uh, too oversubscribed. I had too many other things to do. I couldn't do it justice. And second of all, I think that especially with protest and, and campaigning, you kind of need to be a bit younger. And I don't say this in an ageist kind of way. I just think the older you get, the more sort of jaded and frustrated you get with how things are. And sometimes it takes a young person who hasn't gone through that 
to, to, to take the reins and breathe new life or f- fire up a campaign that's starting to stagnate. So I think certain things do benefit from fresh blood. And even science is like this. You know, science, um, scientific teams are very itinerant. You have lots of turnover. You have people in your lab for four or five years, and then they move on to do something else, and you get fresh blood into the lab. And it really helps you look at things from new angles. So, yeah, I'm not the, the best at letting go of things, but I have done it. And I, I do it because I know it's for the best. Jenny, if you were talking to a young adult now at, at the start of their career, what one thing would you pick out from your own experience as being of most help to them? Well, I would say to that person, and I would say it to my younger self if I could, you don't have to worry about making a wrong career decision. I think anything that you choose is the right answer. And there is no you out there who took the other route that you can then compare yourself to. Every choice you make is valid, I think. And my career has been very uh, meandering. I, I started out as a typical scientist doing the typical things and I got derailed. I I ended up following a person to another country for love and, and going into biotech and leaving academia. I eventually got on the dole. I lost my job there because biotech was very unstable at the time. I, I went into publishing for a few years because I couldn't find a job in science and I eventually found my way back to academic science. And now I'm working more with industry. And I think really those twists and turns were very traumatic at the time. I mean, when I was on the dole, <laughs> that's when I started writing novels. So the funny thing is, is, is even when things go wrong, you can sometimes carve out something unique from that. So I became a novelist and a writer because I was unemployed because I'd followed this person to another country for love. You know, it's not the kind of thing that I would have planned. And it's not the kind of thing that at the time felt very comfortable. But in retrospect, I can look back at all my crazy decisions and all my ins and outs and uh, backs and forths and things. You know what? I learned a lot from that experience. Um, It was hard, but it made me a stronger person. And I learned lots of new skills. And I think I've watched my younger colleagues agonizing about, oh, God, what should I do next? Should I get a Ph.D.? Should I become a doctor? Should I should I just leave science and do something else? And I tell them every single one of them, I say, listen, there is no wrong decision and nothing is irrevocable. You can always go back. So I left academia, but I came back. So there's no decision that's permanent and there's no choice that's really wrong. Jenny, that's inspirational advice. Thanks very much indeed for talking to us. Thanks very much. information is not an offer, solicitation or recommendation of any funds, services or products or to adopt any investment strategy. 